Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Louis Fatoui, an author and researcher in Islamic studies and comparative religion. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you for, for that, and thank you very much for inviting me back on this excellent, outstanding channel of yours. Thank you very much. Alhamdulillah, you're very kind. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Fatoui was born in Baghdad in Iraq and migrated to the UK in the 1990s. He has a PhD in astronomy from Durham University here in England. He came originally from a Christian family but reverted to Islam in his early 20s. He's published over 25 books in English and Arabic in Islamic studies and published over 20 research papers in cosmology and applied historical astronomy and on the Islamic calendar. Today, Dr. Fatoui has kindly agreed to discuss a remarkable book by the first, the famous first century Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus which contains two references to Jesus of Nazareth. This, in fact, is the earliest non-Christian reference to Jesus that we know of anywhere. What does Josephus say about Jesus? And why do nearly all modern scholars think we have a big problem with at least one of the passages? And I remember some years ago when I was a Christian and I was an undergraduate at university studying uh, the Bible and Christian theology, I went on what's called an alpha course. This is this huge global evangelical um, course meant to introduce people to Christianity. And most, many, many churches throughout the world have had this or having this course. And on this course, they quoted the main passage in Josephus's book that refers to Jesus as proof, they say, that Josephus thought Jesus was the Messiah and that Christianity is true. It's an important proof text, according to the Alpha Course. Now, the only problem is that virtually all modern scholars, be they Christians or atheists or whatever, now see this text, which we'll come to in a second, um, as heavily corrupted, as interpolated by later Christian scribes. And there are very good historical and other reasons why it's seen as a corrupted text and cannot be used in the way the Alpha Course uses it or used to use it. And I remember I actually complained afterwards. I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm studying this at university and th this text is not authentic. It's, it's a, a later corruption. And th they admitted it was. I was quite shocked. Think, okay, you get it. You know, why then did you use it? And they say, well, you know, um, it's a bit embarrassing, to be honest. But anyway, um, uh, Louis will uh, take us through the, the passages, the arguments, and why virtually everyone in the world who's an expert on this uh, subject uh, has decided, for very good reasons, is actually a forgery, or at least most of it is uh, corrupted. There might be some residual statements in it that might be authentic, but I, I, I won't take um, Louis' thunder on this. Over to you, sir. Thank you. Um, thank you, Paul. Um, yes, as you said, uh, this is such a, an important piece of text that's been used over the centuries by Christians. And um, it's been the subject of numerous publications, mm. books, papers, you name it. Now, Josephus has actually two passages in which he mentions um, uh, Jesus. One of them is the passage we're going to talk about today, uh, known as Testimonium Flavium 
which is Flavinum, which is basically, which means um, witness of Flavius, which is his uh, uh, Roman name, uh, in which he talks about Jesus in some detail. Uh, it's not very long passage, but it is very long relative to what otherwise we have in other sources from that period. The second passage uh, is about uh, James, the brother of Jesus. And um, that's where he mentions Jesus really in passing. That there isn't really, people usually don't, you know, put much emphasis on that, other than to use it to, as a, one piece of evidence that Jesus was mentioned earlier in the first, in the testimonium. Uh, but I'll get to that point later. So our focus today is on the uh, testimonium. Um, I've discussed this um, in an earlier episode, which was on the historicity, non-historicity of the crucifixion, but in passing in some ways, there were some details, but that wasn't the focus there. Uh, what we're doing here is a more detailed focus, uh, focus discussion uh, of the subject. This subject, this particular passage has been of interest to historians, uh, Christian, of course, in particular, but historians in general <clears throat> uh, of that period. But it hasn't attracted much interest from Muslims. Mm. There's a reason for that. Uh, the discipline of the historical Jesus is quite new to Islamic scholarship, really. What is Muslims, Muslim scholars in general, used to deal with is the theological part of things. And they will always, they were always been interested in comparing the Gospels and New Testament in general with the Quran, with Hadith, and what we have in our own tradition. Uh, but they didn't really, rarely they went beyond that. So engagement with, let's say, secondary sources uh, that are usually used in modern scholarship to discuss the historical Jesus are really hardly, hardly touched. I mean, probably my book on the historical Jesus for all its flows in 2007 was probably one of the first uh, contributions to this subject in, in a substantive way. But obviously, increasingly, this is becoming uh, more of a, an area that a lot of us Muslim scholars engage with. Uh, 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 on an ongoing basis. Hmm. Uh, so the one thing, obviously the testimonium has been discussed numerous times on YouTube as well. So hmm. the question was, so what's the point? You're just doing another one. Well, I hope this is not yet another one. Um, I'm trying to look at things differently. I will be presenting the arguments in a way that is different to how it's usually presented, my emphasis on what I'm going to put the emphasis on why will be different. And also, I will have that Islamic angle as mm. we look at things in what we discuss. So I hope this will be a genuinely new contribution, not in everything I'm going to say, but in parts of what we are going to discuss. And this is my uh, copy of, of the book. Uh, is the book is called Jewish Antiquities in English um, by Flavius uh, Josephus. Uh, it's a big, fat volume here, and I've got the two, uh, the two uh, passages um, earmarked uh, there. Um, this is my cheapo copy. Uh, I don't have a nicer one, um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, obviously it's a huge book, and um, it's uh, it's a, a twenty parts effectively. 
Yeah. Um, and um, and it is actually quite a fundamental uh, kind of uh, large piece of work. And obviously, Paul, in the course of uh, of the discussion, I would really appreciate um, your input, uh, contributions. Uh, I might miss something. I might leave a gap there or something unclear. Or just please, I would appreciate uh, any feedback you may have. Thank you. Uh, and I have, I've got a slideshow to make mm. things, um, um, you know, easier. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, why the testimonium is important? Mm. Well, let's have a look at historically where it fits. So, this is a timeline, as you can see, starting from roughly the year 30 to around 120. Uh, and the cross there is where the crucifixion is believed roughly to have happened around mm. 30 CE. Muslims, we say it didn't happen as in Jesus was not crucified, uh, but obviously uh, the majority of people, Christians and non-Christians of course, believe that it did. So they take this as the date of the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, Paul, is the earliest source we have on Jesus. Uh, his earliest um, letter was from roughly 50 CE, and he wrote until he died, what, died around 62. Mm -hmm. So uh, he is our uh, earlier source. However, Paul isn't really uh, uh, an authority on the historical Jesus. Because he, uh, he never actually met Jesus, did he? He never actually met him at no. all. Uh, it's not like he saw him or chatted to him or anything at all. He never actually met him. And it was several years after Jesus left the scene, ascended into heaven, um, that uh, he had a vision. Paul said he had a vision. Yeah, He had a vision. And obviously, there are uh, different accounts of the vision. So the accounts are not consistent. But I might as well just say a couple of things here since um, you raised the point of Paul's um, teachings. Paul's vision was a one-off experience, and that is really important. People often kind of not put much emphasis on that fact. Because it was a one-off experience, it is unlike anything we know, even from the Torah, the Bible, of how God, Allah, interacted with people when he conveyed teachings, when he conveyed books, when he, it wasn't a one-off thing. It wasn't like one momentary incident in which that particular person received everything. What seems to be the case here. So Paul, on the basis of that one-off experience, he doesn't tell us that he had other experiences, not to my knowledge, there isn't any clear indication that he was spoken to on other occasions, etc. We've got this experience that not only changed his direction from Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba persecuting Christians to being actually an adherent of Christianity and promoter of Christianity. But actually, 
he did that without learning about Christianity. Apparently, this one moment experience injected him with all the knowledge he needed of Christianity. This is unlike anything we know. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to mention this in passing, uh, since we just spoke a little about Paul. Uh, so Paul doesn't have much uh, to say about the historical Jesus. He mentioned the crucifixion, sorry, the crucifixion, because it's at the heart of his theology, um, redemption, atonement. Um, he mentions the Last Supper. He says Jesus was born of a woman. Um, uh, he was Jew. He mentioned just four or five things, really, and that's about it. The bulk of our information on Jesus comes from the four Gospels. And I, as you have noticed, I've listed them uh, roughly where they usually are put on this timeline. Mark mm. is the earliest, and then you've got Matthew, then uh, Luke and John. Uh, where they uh, sit vertically here and uh, in other diagrams is insignificant. That's just to separate them from other to become easier to see. What yeah. matters is that where, where they are, uh, against uh, the x-axis, the horizontal axis. So these are the four uh, that talk to us about, um, about Jesus. And that's where we get our information, the main information that we have. And that's where the testimonium uh, falls, uh, because it was written around 93-94, which is when the antiquities uh, uh, was written by Josephus. As you can see, it is the earliest non-Christian source on Jesus. Well, that alone would make it very, very interesting if it was what it's supposed to be. Independent of Christian sources and genuine um, Josephian writing. On the first one, nobody really believes that Josephus uh, was obviously witness uh, to Jesus. He, he was born in 37, so after Jesus. And um, there's no indication that he studied Christianity, etc. He didn't know much. So anything he tells us is still not an independent source. But because he's such a... Um, kind of um, um, a serious historian and a historian that is considered as dependable, reliable, uh, anything he says, even if he's taken from other sources, is looked at with particular interest. And that's why the testimonium uh, is, is interested here. Interesting. And after the testimonium, the next uh, mentions of Jesus come from in, in the Roman sources, any, any source, uh, comes from uh, these three. Um, Pliny the Young, um, who in some correspondence uh, with um, uh, um, Trajan, the emperor, um, talks about the Christians. And then you've got Suetonius. Suetonius actually mentions uh, Jesus, but he seems to think that Jesus lived in the year, sorry, 49 in Rome. And because of his activities, the Jews were expelled. So there's just something a bit strange about this particular source. 
And then you've got Tacitus, who does mention um, the uh, crucifixion. So the crucifixion uh, is first mentioned after the testimonium is in Tacitus. That's the year 117. That is a long, long time after Jesus. And again, obviously, all of these are secondary sources that are not independent of Christian sources. But um, they are important still because, um, for instance, in the case of Tacitus, he's a very reliable uh, historian. Um, and in those, unlike the Gospels, these Roman sources really it's it's kind of more accurate to say they mention Jesus as opposed to give us any significant details about him. So they only kind of um, passing references to Jesus, uh, to the testimonium being the far more uh, longest kind of um, piece uh, that any of these sources um, contain. Okay. So If I would um, just okay, um, before we talk about the testimonium, well, we need just to say a couple of things about Josephus as a background. Elvis Josephus uh, was born as a Jew, um, and um, in the Jewish war, uh, he actually fought against the Romans. Jewish war that started in '66. By the way, jo Josephus actually wrote a book called The Jewish War. You can get it in. It sounds like a, a commercial. This is not a commercial break. I'm just trying to show you that we actually have a book written by him. Why is this so significant? Well, this is the, the Jewish War is obviously the uh, events leading up to the destruction of, of the Jewish temple. Um, uh, probably the, the single most momentous catastrophic event in the history of the Jewish people um, uh, after the events of the 20th century, of course. And I mention this is because Josephus was actually a participant. He was a commander in the Roman army, believe it or not. I mean, he, he switched sides. I won't go into that whole story, but it's actually a really colorful story. And he did switch sides and join the Romans. Um, but anyway, this is a first person eyewitness account and it's eye-wateringly painful it's horrible what happened because he as i say he was actually there and the 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 massacres and the killings and and it took years you know it took several years for the romans to acquire um you know victory over the jews who were very very resilient in their resistance to uh the romans but he's seen um by many jews as a traitor which is why he's often not mentioned in the jewish sources understandably but uh, it, it, the Christians liked him and they even built a statue to him in fourth century Rome, apparently, um, to Flavius Josephus, as he was a good Roman Jew um, who supported the Romans. But anyway, I don't want to go on about that, but it's actually really, it's a very interesting book to read. Um, yeah. 2,000 years later. And you're right, he was a general in Galilee. And then um, obviously he surrendered. Uh, apparently yeah. after convincing those um, last soldiers left, uh, to call each other rather than commit suicide, which is not forbidden in Jewish law. But when it got to him, he decided to surrender rather than get killed. So he surrendered, and then apparently, according to him, the account goes that uh, he spoke to uh, Vespasian, who was the general at the time, and apparently he told him that he predicted him mm. that he will become the uh, emperor. 
yeah. which indeed he ended up becoming the emperor. And apparently that's when he took him to Rome, uh, make him, made him a Roman citizen, uh, gave him a salary. He didn't need to work anymore. And that's why he had plenty of time on his hands to write all these books. Yeah, it just reminds me, I don't want to get controversial and political because one mustn't, but, you know, it reminds me of certain Muslim scholars who go to a certain superpower in the world today and take up lucrative um, uh, academic posts in certain think tanks and um, universities in, in this certain superpower <laughs> and, and uh, given citizenship and end up being very pro this certain country having left the Muslim world. And, hey, that's my political controversial point. But Flavius... The Flavian type seems to exist today, if I can be. Yeah, correct. yeah. I, I think what I would add to that, Paul, if somebody would do that, as, as long as they are open and honest and say, this is what I'm doing, fair enough, that's, their, that's what they choose to do, whether we agree with them or don't, but at least it just put it plainly and say, well, this is where I'm coming from. But then most of the time, the agenda is hidden and you don't even know where, what the work is being exactly, what it's intended for. But that's obviously that's as you say it's a bit of a uh, side point so yeah. in uh, um, 94 93 um the book of antiquities was written mm -hmm. uh, about 15 years earlier i think he wrote the jewish war mm -hmm. uh, yes that is uh, the jewish war is in 10 books yeah uh, antiquities in 20. yeah um it was a very detailed um antiquities starts basically from adam yeah. Yeah, from the very beginning of creation. In fact, he, as for some history, starting from the beginning of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a quite a, a detailed uh, book. So, um, if I, I think, if to the stream, we go back, please. Yep. Yeah. And then. Okay. Okay. So, I'm going to cite the text first. So just 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 repeat. I know you said at the beginning, but it's called the Flavian, uh, the Testimonium Flavian. This is a Latin um, term which is just now used by scholars to refer to the passage, the main passage that mentions Jesus in the Jewish antiquities. Uh, um, Flavian is the first name, if you like, of Josephus, Flavius Josephus. So it's got this obscure Latin name, but it's just basically the passage we're looking at now. It's called the Testimonium Flavian by scholars. It's just where, where Josephus talks about Jesus, allegedly talks about Jesus. And that's the whole point. Did Flavius um, Josephus actually write these words? And that's the, the whole issue, really. The, yes. The, um, this is the translation by uh, Louis Feldman, uh, who until he died in 2017 was the, considered by most uh, the leading uh, authority on Josephus. I'm going to refer to him later on hmm. uh, in the discussion. So I'm going to read it out for those uh, who don't watch but only listen uh, to this discussion. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. Even if indeed one ought to call him a, a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, meaning the Jews, talking as a Jew, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to live uh, to love him did not give, give up their affection for him. 
On the third day, he appeared to them, restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, this is the passage. This is the passage that was accepted for over 12 centuries as a genuine piece written by Josephus. Josephus was known to be a Jew, a faithful Jew, but not Christian. As we will see, in fact, he rejected the Christianity, according to, to the same scholars, to Christian scholars. So Christian scholars always knew that Josephus was a Jew who rejected the messiahship uh, of uh, Jesus. Yet, this passage for over 12 centuries was accepted as genuine Josephian, Josephian writing. It's a quite staggering, really, looking at it. Anybody looking at this can only conclude this must have been written by a Christian. The, now, I know there are arguments about bits and pieces inside, but what jumps at you, not those bits and pieces that may be open to interpretation, what jumps at you, the big pronouncements Christian pronouncements. This is a piece that includes elements of Christian theology. Now, after this kind of, when we got um, after 12, those 12 centuries or so, in the middle of 16th century, the first, I think, person to voice doubts about whether this is genuinely written by Josephus, was a German uh, legal scholar. And, uh, and, and then from then on, he started the trend whereby scholars started to doubt parts of this passage and say, this was, these were interpolated by Christians. Mm. And the three parts are these. If indeed one ought to call him a man, Mm. This is a declaration of divinity of Jesus. That's what it is. So that's why um, it was rejected as a Christian interpolation. This was the second. He was the Messiah. This is exactly what the Jews did not believe in and Josephus did not believe in. And then we, know, we, know, we know from other, other um, writings of Josephus that he was a he was a self-identified Jew who didn't believe in Christianity. This is not controversial. There's lots of evidence that he uh, rejected Christianity. Yet mysteriously, in this one place, he starts talking like a committed believing Christian. Death and resurrection, and Jesus was more than a man. It looks very odd indeed. And this, this is why scholars thinking, hang on, what's going on here? How can he suddenly start talking like this in this one isolated example in all of his work? He starts talking like a Christian. Um, so th this is why it's sort of odd, to put it mildly. Yeah. So you've got you've got a passage in which he talks about his divinity, mm. another about his him being the Messiah, and the third is about him actually being raised from uh, the dead and mm. then his uh, post-crucifixion appearances. And um, these are the... Clearly, anybody looking at it neutrally will say, well, these are clearly Christian uh, professions. This is just not possible to have been written by a Jew. But 
anyway, it took um, 12 centuries, over 12 centuries, to get us to this point. Mm. The problem here, though, this is, by the way, the opinion of most scholars now, which is this. Interpolated, interpolated, interpolated. Mm -hmm. That is the passage that the majority of scholars, so the first phase was accept everything in there as genuine, written, genuinely written by uh, Josephus. Mm. And from the middle of the 16th century, and increasingly so, of course, these days, there's only a tiny, tiny minority that would still kind of live in, the, in those old times and have the same mentality to argue that this is actually written by Josephus. A small minority that rejects it altogether, which is my position, which I'm going to try to show. And then the majority of scholars have this uh, view of it, which is basically remove these three pieces and you've got the original that was written by Josephus. One problem with this argument is that this supposed sanitized passage has not been seen by a single person, quoted by a single person. It doesn't exist anywhere. It does exist in the mind of scholars. It doesn't exist anywhere. We've got this form of the passage with little changes here and there, as we will discuss later. But the, the popular uh, version of the passage that excludes the Christian, Christian interpolations, uh, which is the view of most scholars, uh, does not exist. Nobody's seen it. There's no indication. It just, it's, king, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a conclusion mm. um, that, um, that scholars uh, get to. So what I'm going to do now, um, I'm going to try and start by focusing on the main pieces of evidence uh, that support the view that this passage was wholly created by someone, by Christian, and someone other than Josephus. Josephus could not have written it. Now, why do, if, if, there, if there is strong evidence, and you'll find people talking about strong evidence in every side of the argument. Because when it comes to, um, to ancient history, um, the discussion, the conclusions, the views are usually based on balancing evidence. And somebody will say, this is a stronger argument. The other will say, I think this is stronger argument. And in the course of doing that, it's very difficult um, not to be influenced by other kind of uh, background noise, let's say, other assumptions, other um, preconceptions we have. Um, but we try as much as possible to present um, the views, the different views, and balance them and see which one makes more sense. So my focus is, as I say, is to present first what I consider to be evidence that this whole passage uh, is completely made up uh, by a Christian uh, writer or writers at some point. So what, what, what do we know about the history of the testimonium? Now, this is what we are told. Josephus wrote Antiquities in 93, 94. That, so the implication is that this is when 
he's supposed to have written it. But look at this. This is a large number of Christian writers who wrote after Josephus and quoted Josephus who had no knowledge whatsoever of the testimony. None. So the argument would be if all these well-known Christian writers, particularly people like Origen, who was you know, such a celebrated scholar, uh, early Christian scholar, um, if, you know, when they quoted Josephus, which they did, why would they ignore this really juicy pro-Christianity passage uh, in their citation of Josephus? But the one thing they would obviously quote from to support their case, their, their, their proclamation, but all of them failed to notice this passage when they uh, quote from Josephus. So this is indirect evidence that they didn't know it existed because why would they ignore it? Of course, they wouldn't have ignored it. And, and uh, to go back to Origen, and you're absolutely right, he's a special case. He actually, he cites uh, antiquity seven times, right, including five passages, and he does not mention the testimonium. He mentions the James passage, he does not mention the testimonium. The James passage only says that James was the brother of Jesus, period. Mm. It's not much help for Christians really. Yet, the passage that's supposed to have helped all of these guys in their cause of promoting Christianity is never mentioned. Clearly, they were not aware of it. Now, one thing I, I need to say here, the dates of these different authors might shift a little bit either way, a little bit here and there. They are not 100% accurate. I used um, mainly uh, Feldman's data I had to adapt it a little bit, I'll um, show later in a couple of places, uh, but basically that's roughly uh, the picture, just to, and then... Uh, that, sorry, just, that's very interesting what you're saying, and it reminds me of another example, the famous Trinity verse in the New Testament, uh, found, allegedly found in the first letter of John uh, 5, 7, and this is a quite explicit Trinitarian verse, you Google it if you want to look it up. But of course, uh, we all know now that this is a forged text that was inserted into the Bible, although it's still in one modern translation. The, the New King James Version still like to recycle it. But I, I mention this because this verse uh, was never quoted in the early church by any of the early fathers, including people like Origen and so on. They never knew about this verse, which again, in a similar way, is indirect evidence that didn't exist, because why would they ignore a Trinity verse um, in the Bible, you know, it's just an obvious thing to quote, and no one knows about it. Augustine famously didn't quote from it either. It was only much, much later, centuries later, that it started to appear. So that's another kind of example of how we know things are not there in original manuscripts. Because we don't actually have, you haven't studied it yet, maybe you will. But the, I think the earliest manuscript of the Jewish antiquities that we have is something like in the 10th or 11th century AD. Yeah. A complete manuscript. But we have lots of citations of it centuries earlier and as you rightly say none of them mentioned this uh testimonium this particular paragraph that we're lasering in today yeah yeah and origin by the way uh, does mention that josephus did not believe jesus was the messiah all oh, right mm -hmm. and uh, so so he gives us just the kind of you look at him and say definitely he had access to antiquities but he wasn't aware uh, of the testimonium so where when did it 
start uh, came into being. Here we go. Uh, Eusebius, that's around the year 423, 24 or so. Yeah. And then um, that's what, um, about 230 years or so after um, supposedly Josephus wrote it. This is the first time uh, that it's mentioned. It's mentioned by uh, Eusebius in three uh, of his works. Um, demonstration of the Gospel, Ecclesiastical History, and Theophany, in three of them. Um, and he mentioned them in a three slightly different kind of um, version. Um, um, now, when you look at this picture, if you just look at it the way it is now, if it wasn't really um, this particular passage, uh, this passage would have been completely ignored and as something that was created later. How it was created, by whom, it doesn't really matter. However, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's about Jesus and because, and that's really very important, because of the lack of um, extra biblical, extra mm. New Testament information about Jesus. Uh, people just jumped at it and they just won't, wouldn't, wouldn't let go. And then after Eusebius, uh, the deafening silence continues. So here is Eusebius, and this is what we have after him. Wow. Now, Jerome um, wrote towards the end of the uh, third century. And as you can see, there's a long time between when Eusebius first mentioned it and when it next cited uh, by a Christian writer. Now, had I gone with uh, Feldman's actually um, timeline, uh, more kind of the way he put it, uh, the, the, the diagram would have looked even more dramatic because some of these um, Christian writers would have moved further to the left and you would have had them even more closer um, to Eusebius, but slightly. Uh, but still, it is really quite a staggering image here. So uh, what you see here is that the first uh, time the passage appears is in the year around the year 320, 324. Uh, and then it makes its second appearance in the year 400. Now, Jerome didn't simply quote it as is. In Jerome, uh, the declaration that Jesus was the Messiah was modified. The, mm. Jerome has it as Jesus was believed to be the Messiah. So yeah. it looks like he looked at it and said, well, that doesn't come difficult to see how, how Josephus could have said that, whether it's him or someone else. But that's the passage he cited it. He cited Furthermore, he cited Josephus about 90 times, but he mentions the testimonium only once. Again, for anybody who's looking to promote Christianity, you would think he would have made a lot more of it, but not. And um, the case of John Chrysostom there is a particularly um, kind of peculiar because he was a fierce critic of the Jews. 
if he was aware of the testimonium, he would have definitely used it to attack the Jews. Clearly, uh, he didn't know it existed. So that's the picture to the middle of the fifth century. And the question is, is this really, um, is, does this suggest to us that the passage was authentic? And um, to put it all together, mm. and I'm asking a question here, testimonium, was it written by Eusebius? Oh, interesting. Now, this is the whole shebang now. We've got it all. And what you see here is um, Josephus, where he's supposed to have written it, and where it appeared, Eusebius, Jerome, etc. And um, the, 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 the suggestion that Eusebius might have written it is not something that is not my idea, of course. I think, to my knowledge, the earliest uh, scholar to suggest that this might Solomon uh, Zeitlin in 1928. All right. But more recently, there's a scholar called Ken Olson who kind of advanced this, this theory. Um, he wrote first a paper in 1999 and then followed up with another in 2013, I think. Uh, in which he really makes a very, very strong case. Mm. Feldman, um, I think in, the, in his writings from, I think the latest I've seen in 2012 or so, seems to kind of accept that, but he didn't say this explicitly. But the point here is, is this, it may or may not be Eusebius, but surely it can be, it, 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 you can make a stronger case for Eusebius than Josephus, by far. Mm, mm. So it might not be him. He might be given this by somebody. We don't know because even when he quoted it three times, he quoted it with, with differences. So he wasn't kind of uh, using the same uh, text exactly. And um, what's interesting is about this, this kind of shocking image in front of us, it's not only Christian scholars who still kind of um, accept that Josephus wrote something. It's actually secular scholars as well, um, including prominent scholars like Ehrman, Bart Ehrman. Um, he would also, again, uh, he subscribes to the idea that um, there were interpolations in the passage, uh, but it was, uh, it was written, the, the, what we saw earlier, was written by Josephus. I mean, I think we just, just a, a quick uh, footnote here. The idea of Christian forgeries is is unfortunately not new, and there are many, many Christian for, uh, forgeries uh, in the early centuries. Um, most of them um, are very well known uh, and not disputed. You know, uh, gospels claim to be written by Peter, like the Gospel of Peter. No one actually thinks the the historical Peter actually wrote it, for example. But also there are there are a number of them in the New Testament itself, and that is a standard critical a judgment, like to Peter, in fact, is, is often seen as a forgery. In fact, it's 
almost universally seen as a forgery, I should say, by virtually all scholars in the world, outside of fundamentalist Bible seminaries in the United States, I should say. Uh, I mean, mainstream critical scholars. And I, I mention all this is because the idea of Eusebius, the early church historian, who's a great, a very revered figure, actually uh, falsifying and, and fabricating Christian testimony, although shocking, is not unique and unusual at all. This was, there was a veritable industry of fakes. And this is something, it's not an anti-Christian point. Muslims in Islam have suffered from the same reality too, on a huge scale. There's a massive number of fake hadiths. Now this is not some scandalous revelation. Uh, this is something that scholars have known about, Islamic scholars, right from the beginning, um, that there were um, fake hadiths. And that's why a highly sophisticated um, uh, science of hadith criticism was developed very early on. And we see the gold standard in Bukhari and Muslim where, you know, the emphasis on the isnad, on the actual change of transmission and the content. And a, a very sophisticated methodology was developed very early to winnow out all the fake stuff from the gold, the real authentic hadiths. So this is something the Muslim world, the ulama, the scholars have dealt with quite quickly from the beginning. Unfortunately, it's not the, the story in the Christian tradition where um, fakes have been circulating as true um, even today. Uh, and we see them in the New Testament, as I say, and there are huge whoppers like the donation of Constantine, which people don't really speak of these days, but it was a, a fake text attributed to the Emperor Constantine, who allegedly um, uh, was given by Pope Sylvester uh, dominion over, um, you know, uh, so gave the Pope dominion over uh, the Roman Empire. And this was used to justify papal authority uh, in the Middle Ages, subsequently exposed as a fake, a forgery. No one defends it today. And I mentioned the Trinity verse in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a huge industry of fakes. And um, the point here, I think, for me, is that most Christians are unaware of this. Most Christians are unaware that their own scholars are saying there are fakes in the New Testament, like 2 Peter, for example. They're unaware that um, this testimony to Jesus being the Messiah and dying and rising uh, you know, in Josephus is a fake, according to virtually all the experts in the world. And so they carry on, like on the Alpha course that I was on, they carry on saying it's true, it's evidence for the truth of Christianity, even though they might know it's not true, as they did on the course, they told me. Yeah, we know it's not true, but I, I mean, the statement is true, even though Josephus didn't write it. Well, it's a fake. <laughs> Josephus didn't say it. You can't use it. That was my moral point, but it kind of fell on deaf ears. It was a little bit embarrassing, to be honest. So um, I, I, I want to stress this is not an isolated example. No. It's something of a much wider practice of fakes, forgeries in the early Christian tradition. I think what's interesting here as well, Paul, uh, picking on this excellent point, the the problem I have with the image we've just looked at and what we're going to talk about later is that we're dealing with scholars, scholars who study, who use arguments, who develop arguments, not somebody who just inherited some belief and supposedly will look more carefully, examine, etc. But Amen wrote a book i think it's called forged isn't it uh, he wrote but, two books he wrote yeah a book called forged which i've read is a popular book for a popular i say popular i mean it's meant for the general public he's also written another book called forgery and counter forgery which i've 
I could get. But that's an academic work, uh, which I read. I'm proud to say I've read every single page of it. And, and this is um, a much more scholarly and thorough um, uh, assessment of the evidence, highly praised by his colleagues, experts in the field. And this really shows conclusively that there were forgeries. They were not accepted. Uh, forgeries were not acceptable by the way, by the normative church, but nevertheless, they were duped, basically, into, th into accepting them. But we now have excellent reason for thinking they were forged. Yeah, but I guess the point here is, if even scholars who are so aware and so interested in discussing, exposing forgeries, would go out of the, their way to stress the passage after sanitization is actually Josephine. It tells me this is a mindset issue. This mm. is not about the balance of evidence. Mm. I'm really desperate for something other than the Gospels. I mean, look, a lot of people got a lot of promotions out of this passage, let's be honest. So it's really very good for writing books, papers, etc. And it is because I can't otherwise fully understand how one would think it's more likely this to be to have been written by Josephus than Eusebius or whoever put it made it accessible to him, but that's really the situation uh, we are uh, we're dealing with there. Um, now, Eusebius is actually known uh, to have changed <clears throat> quotes, so this is not like something uh, anew. If it was him. Uh, who made it up, who created it. There, he's also known to have reported um, um, a speech by um, Licinius in, in the battle uh, with Constantine uh, in 324, where he supposedly declared that if we lose, it means God is on their part, etc. And he claims that he was given the account immediately afterwards by people uh, who were there or who um, uh, right. witnessed that. But obviously uh, that is just uh, not not true. And um, um, I think that was it the battle in three, what don't remember the exact year, but anyway, uh, that wasn't true. The, the most scholars now think that this speech never took place and it was completely made up uh, by Eusebius. And um, I'm going to read something here in my notes from Ecclesiastical History in, in his introduction to the Testimonium. And this is very important because he says the following. After narrating this about John, this is John the Baptist supposedly, uh, about John the Baptist, he also makes, he meaning Josephus, makes mention of our savior in the same historical work as follows. And then the testimonium is given. Now, the problem with this introduction is that what, what Eusebius has done, he introduced, um, he introduced the, the story of John as he knows it from the gospels. Now, Josephus' story of John the Baptist is different. The reason he was uh, executed, for instance, because Josephus thinks because he had a lot of fellow followers. He had nothing to do with the, the story of uh, Herodias and, and all of that uh, that you find in, in Luke, I think. 
uh, it, that's not um, the story in Josephus. So to start with, that's not what Josephus says about John. So he gives the impression, impression as if John actually, uh, Josephus said this about John first. Second, the story of John, which is quite buzz puzzling in uh, antiquities, is in book 20. Hmm. The testimonium is in book 18. So it's earlier. Now, as we know, according to the Gospels, the John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, and Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So this is clearly completely wrong when he says, Josephus says so-and-so about John, and then he speaks about Jesus. Now, he doesn't do this. In fact, he does it the other way around. Not only that, he separates uh, about 100, 150 pages between the two, whatever the number of pages. So that is an example of Eusebius making it up. That's, that's not actually a true. And that then goes on to actually tell us that this is the testimonium, one of the three instances in which he cites the testimonium. So I think the, the question here, was it written by Eusebius? Possibly wasn't written by Josephus, impossible. Uh, was it, if it wasn't Eusebius, who else? Well, it could be anybody else. Um, there, thereabout, he got hold of something. He added to it a little bit. We don't know exactly. But actually, what's important for us Muslims, and even those who are interested in um, Muslim literature, Islamic tradition, is really to compare this situation. We have the concept of mutawatir. You spoke about it earlier. We have a concept where we accept authority, the authority of something, because we know who conveyed it, and we have a chain of transmission. Now, some of these chains of transmissions are incorrect, include false uh, attributions. Admit it. I accept that. But at least our scholars realized you need some way of verifying an account. An account that appears out of nowhere is inadmissible. Nobody would use it. If this had happened in our tradition, this passage which, which would have died with its author. Whoever wrote it would have taken it to the grave with him. It would not have taken life of its own. Nobody would have considered it. Nobody would have looked at it. Scholars, the same scholars who criticize Hadith have to apply surely, surely, some similar criteria of some, some similar, we don't want identical criteria, but just some of it, some of that, some way of saying that if something comes, comes out of nowhere and I don't know where they got it from and supposedly something they're quoting, something that was written, said centuries ago, I really can't accept it. I know where have they got it from. And we know, it, we call it disconnected. There is no connection between the person who's giving you the quote, hadith or whatever, and the person who's supposed to have started it. Obviously, in our case, if it's the Prophet it has to have continuous chain of transmission. If one of these was cut off, so if one of them didn't live when he was supposed to have lived, we say this is So this is there's actually you can't uh, accept uh, that chain of transmission. That doesn't exist. Uh, so we're not saying even it's, uh, we have the concept of ahad. So if mutawatir, mutawatir means that it's been transmitted through so many ways that it is virtually impossible to have been made up. 
But we have, even if that not, um, let's go for the kind of lower standards. I had, I had these uh, hadith that were transmitted by maybe one, two, or three chains uh, of transmission. That's all right. We don't have even this here. This is a quite a strange um, situation comparing to what we know. This is the equivalent of of a Tabari, who's a well-known historian, died early in the fourth century Hijri. A Tabari coming up with something about the Prophet out of nowhere, okay, and that then being picked up um, a century and a half later by somebody like uh, Al Asbahani, who wrote about the seerah of the Prophet and then that that whatever was picked by Asbahani becomes actually substance of study, etc., by everyone, most of people that come afterwards at some point. That is, and I'm, I want really to stress and emphasize that the contrast between those two paradigms, between those two models of accepting or rejecting the authenticity of tradition that we inherit. That is completely missing. Why is that? Why is that? Because think of the Gospels. What are, how did the Gospels got to us? How is the uh, testimonium different from the Gospels? In what way exactly? It's closer to the event. It wasn't written by, none of the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. We don't know who these people are. We don't know who they got their information from. We know nothing about them. We know that this is all we have. And I'll tell you something. We have to make do with them. That's really the mindset here. And that mindset is extended to Josephus because it is the first and earliest non-Christian source on Jesus. In my view, there is no other reason to not reject it as a complete forgery. If we took probabilities, and that's what we do in history, <clears throat> the probability, it's more probable, more likely that this was made up by somebody uh, Eusebius or someone else, than surely written by Josephus. That is the mindset that's actually driving the acceptance of um, the partial authenticity of, of Josephus. Sorry, you wanted to say something, Paul? No, 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 that's fine. No, that's, that's good. Should I put the uh, back on the screen? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So that was the first argument. Um, as, but just to say one thing um, before we move on, Feldman noted that this is an argument from silence, mm. but it is deafening silence. And he does make the point that it's still a quite stark situation to be looking at here. So just mm. to, uh, it is uh, an argument of silence, but it is not any silence. This is silence that speaks. Okay, this is the second argument against the authenticity of any part of this piece. Back to it. Now, what I've done here, I'm quoting the testimonium again, but I have <clears throat> colored the three passages that are considered uh, as Christian interpolations. The rest supposedly is genuine. The problem, one problem with this I'm going to show now is that this passage in Greek consists of 89 words. The, of those 89, 29 
make up those Christian uh, sentences. In other words, if you want to go with the majority opinion of Western scholars, Christian and Christians, a third of this passage is um, inauthentic, and the two thirds that were left with, as is, have to say as well, is authentic. This is a, a very unique model of authenticated, authenticating an ancient piece of text. I'm, I'm not sure whether anybody has done anything similar. And then maybe somebody did it, maybe two did it, but to the whole, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of scholars to follow it is, I, I would be surprised if there's a similar uh, in, instance. But even that, if the argument that a third of this should go is not good enough, let's talk about something else. That third they want to remove to leave us with something that can be accepted as non-Christian or neutral, actually is tightly integrated to the rest of the passage. This is one example. So you've got uh, the part in, um, highlighted in black, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Well, that is a clearly, the, the, um, the phrase before that, wise man. Clearly, this is, if indeed one ought to call him a man, is a qualifier, a corrective. That's actually referring to the previous phrase. Because the writer called him a wise man, now that he has to remind us that he wasn't, after all, a man. So if you remove that, then you have removed something that's actually intended to be um, to complete the, the description of Jesus as a wise man. Furthermore, what follows after this uh, phrase, uh, this clause, is exactly also an explanation that is related to it. For he was one who wrote, wrote surprising feats, so he did effectively miracles, let's say. Again, these two uh, clauses that surround uh, the suspect, the Christian interpolation, are tightly integrated. You can't just remove if indeed one ought to call him a man and leave the rest as is. That's passage unity. Moving on to the second, he was the Messiah. So that should be removed. Okay? But then we had towards the end and the tribe of the Christians so-called after him. If you remove the Messiah, Christos, then to tell the Greek audience they were called Christians after him would leave them with no clue as to what the writer is talking about. We, it, the, the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, Christ, the Christ, must have been mentioned earlier. Mm. Oh, this, for, for, for the uh, reader of the passage, the Greek reader, to understand why these were called Christians. Otherwise, that conclusion, that reference, will become often. It's just mm. nobody can relate it to anything else. And there's something else to notice here. Now, <clears throat> we have um, Josephus, supposedly, whoever wrote it, telling us that <clears throat> Pilate uh, executed um, Jesus. 
But what's strange, and this has been noted by a number of scholars, is that he does not tell us why. All he says is that um, fellow Jews, uh, high standing amongst us, um, convinced Pilate to execute him, and he executed him. But he doesn't say why. That is very odd not to say why. But if you look at it in, in, in kind of slightly differently, and you look for something that's already there, you understand why. He was the Messiah. He was the Messiah. So because of that, in, Luke, in the Synoptic Gospels, <clears throat> in the Jewish trial of Jesus, uh, he was charged with claiming to be the Messiah. When he was taken to Pilate, the four Gospels, four of them, say he was accused of claiming to be the king of the Jews, which is the Messiah. In other words, a Christian reader doesn't need to be told why Pilate executed Jesus, because it's already been mentioned. He was the Messiah. He executed him because he was the Messiah. If you remove that, we have no reason, and the uh, statement would become just he executed him, but without telling us why. So that's another reason, another part of the passage that's supposedly non-Christian, that's connected directly to uh, to the to to the um, uh, part that's considered to be Christian. He was the Messiah. Hmm. Very interesting points. Now the other thing to mention about <coughs> about this is that the Greeks who were supposed to be reading this written for <coughs> Greek audience had no idea what a Messiah is. Hmm. What is the Messiah? Hmm. They don't know. A Christian would understood would have understood what the Messiah is. Again, you can see a mentality, Christian mentality, there explicitly and implicitly. Implicitly and explicitly. Then we move to the last passage, and this is about him um, coming back from the dead, etc. And that again seems to be linked directly to the statement before that. Those who had the first, um, who had in the first place come to love him, did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, why did they not? He was killed, he was humiliated, he was buried, he's gone. Anybody would say, well, surely even if they had any faith in him, they would have lost that faith. But no, they didn't. Why? Because on the third day, he appeared to them, restored, restored life, etc. Hmm. That other part would have to go with the blue Christian interpolation. So what we need to do here remove everything that's highlighted in black and uh, bordered in black, highlighted in red, bordered in red, highlighted in blue, and bordered in blue. And then supposedly we will end up with what was originally written, originally written. Mm. Does this sound? No, no. Yeah. So that's, that's the other uh, argument. And obviously, uh, we have to remind ourselves, uh, we Muslims are particularly interested in this passage as well because of its reference to the crucifixion. This 
fundamental belief that Jesus was crucified. Um, the, we don't believe that Jesus was crucified because the Quran tells us he was not. I did a couple of um, uh, interviews with you, Paul, earlier, and there was, I think, recently uh, an outstanding presentation by Dr. Uh, Ali Atai uh, on the subject, which I highly recommend uh, viewers to have a look at. And so for us, uh, because we don't believe in the crucifixion, we look for these references that are usually used to tell us that, well, everybody knew he was crucified. Well, so far, we know that the Gospels say that, but so far, up to quite some time after that, up to Tacitus, this is the first time in 117, we heard the second time a passing mention to the crucifixion by somebody who would have heard it from I don't know how many, um, you know, third, fourth generation of Christians. So that's um, just to remind ourselves why this is also particularly interesting to us Muslims. So, so that's passage unity. That's the second argument, third argument. Josephus, the Jewish admirer. Now, the claim by those who talk about the partial authenticity of the passage of the testimonium is that if we remove those three uh, controversial Christian parts, then we end up with neutral passage that could have, well, could have been well written by Josephus. I, I disagree with that, strongly disagree. He was a wise man. Now, um, Josephus described Solomon as wise. So this is not um, a neutral description, not in the past, not in modern times, not at any point in time. Describing somebody as wise is not being neutral. Uh, to describe him neutrally, you only say he's a man. You don't say he's a wise man. Say he was, he's a man, talking about his gender. But if you say he's a wise man, well, you're giving us a lot of more information about what you think of him and you think very highly of him. That's not um, how you would describe somebody uh, in a neutral way. Eusebius is, um, is, is, is known to have replied to a Greek philosopher, Roman philosopher, who claimed that Christians uh, um, mistook Jesus for a god when he was actually only a wise man. So if you go with the assumption um, that Eusebius, Eusebius wrote the testimonium, then there is a reason for him to do that because it's part of his argument, a reply uh, to this um, porphyry, the uh, philosopher who, who, who made this argument. So that's that's potential reason there. And also, uh, he used he described Jesus uh, as 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 wise man. I think in um, my notes here, prophetic eclogos. So he did um, call him wise man. Again. This is the, another part that's supposedly um, neutral. 
he was one who wrote surprising feats. Surprising feats, what are these? They're not uh, negative implication. In fact, some translations and Christians always believed that he was referring to miracles. So the understanding here is that the reference was to miracles. That's not neutral. When you follow that, you've already called somebody a wise man, and then you follow up and say, uh, he actually performed surprising feats. Uh, it's highly unlikely that you meant to demean him in any way or to just make a neutral uh, statement about him. Uh, this particular expression um, is found only in the testimonium uh, uh, in Josephus' uh, works, but it is found in Eusebius' works. Olson, Ken Olson, has done quite a bit of work on this uh, for those who would like to, um, you know, look in more detail into that. He was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. So here now, it turned out that it's not only he was a teacher of truth, of the truth. In fact, people who followed him clearly loved the truth. So now we move from um, um, praising Jesus to actually saying something very positive about his followers. Again, if we were to put these three statements together and bring somebody who has no background, no prejudices, no nothing, and tell them these are descriptions uh, of an ancient writer of a man who lived there or thereabout. What do you think is that writer telling us about this man? Not a single person would say, oh, he is saying some neutral things. I have no idea what he meant, whether he liked him or not. Is this what you think is gonna happen, Paul? Indeed. Right. Moving on, he won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. And that is just outright wrong on so many accounts. And I'll explain this in, in, in more detail. Uh, now, remember, Josephus lived in nine, wrote this in 93, 94. Hmm. And at the time, there were not, there wasn't like the number of, of Christians was huge, not at all. But there are other issues uh, with this uh, statement. So, first of all, let's look at the number of Christians and um, whether Jesus really converted. So, Jesus is reported to have said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's in Matthew. Chapter 15. 15, 24. <laughs> and then, also in Matthew, he tells his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not even the Samaritans, who actually Jews themselves originally, even though they disagreed with later Jews, but they are not Gentiles. But even those uh, were said that he wasn't, he didn't, he prevented uh, his uh, disciples from no, but also this is often uh, overlooked he said i was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of israel he's not saying i mean i'm being pedantic here 
he's not saying I'm only sent to the Jews. He's saying I'm only sent to the lost sheep within the house of Israel. So it's it's a subset of a of, of a subset. It's even smaller than just the Jews. It's Absolutely. those who are lost of the Jews. So there are righteous people who are Jews. Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. You know, it mentions there are several righteous people amongst the Jews. Um, I think the parents of Zachariah, for example. So he wasn't sent for them by that logic, uh, but only to the lost sheep within the house of Israel. So it's a very narrow kind of um, uh, mission field, I suppose. It certainly doesn't. But you're right. It doesn't include Gentiles at all. It doesn't. However, things changed after him. This mm. is what what we what what we read after the crucifixion, after the crucifixion, and this is from from Luke. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be uh, proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and see I'm sending upon you what my father promised to stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So here the tone is changed, but note something. This is after, afterwards. So this is actually very late. And this is the account that uh, we think is inauthentic. That's now, because he's talking that to them later after the crucifixion, supposedly now telling them that at some point in time, you will be sent. And why is that? Because that's what happened in Acts. So in Acts, uh, early on, the very beginning, while staying with them after he appeared to them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. Now, promise of the Father, is that when he comes back or is that suggesting kind of preparation? Because actually they go on later and preach to the Gentiles as we all know. But what we know is that during his life, he focused only on the Jews. He spoke only to Jews. That does not mean that he turned away people who came to who are not Jews. No, there are instances and he had no reason to do that. But people who came, he did not seek them and he was focused on the jews yeah th th these are exceptions rather than the rule uh, i mean in matthew 15 famously a gentile comes to him and he rebuffs her he ignores her it's quite and he uses what by today's standards would be a race a racial uh, a racist epithet i'm not saying the historical jesus did any of this by the way i'm just this is what the gospels claim uh, but he did ultimately relent. But these are exceptional uh, instances of Gentile healings. Um, that they're not the norm, clearly. Yeah. And then might mention as well that this is exactly how the Quran describes Jesus. Hmm. This is from the Annunciation when Mary was told about uh, Jesus. And he will teach him the book, Wisdom, the Torah, and the Injil, and make him a messenger to the children of Israel. And then Jesus himself said, and when Jesus, the son of Mary, said, all children of Israel, I'm a messenger of Allah to you. And then another verse where he say, Allah says, he was not but a servant on whom we bestowed, bestowed favor and we made them an example for the children of Israel. So I just wanted to kind of mention this and say that uh, that part of the Gospels is very much in line with what the Quran says. And in fact, during his life, uh, what we see is uh, a manifestation or 
you know, embodiment of that message that he will send only to the Jews because none of his disciples went anywhere else. In fact, he prevented them from doing so. And yeah. they stayed uh, with him and he was preaching only in Palestine to the Jews. So that's what the um, Quran and, deals with. Uh, uh, there's an additional point here which is implicit in that, which is often overlooked in Christian circles, is that the earliest evidence suggests that Jesus was a Torah observant Jew. In other words, he, he uh, followed the Torah and he will teach him the, the Torah, as it says in that first quote from the Quran. Um, this matters because Jesus as a Torah observant Jew, as a faith, what we would call an Orthodox Jew today, is very different from the Christianity that evolved later, particularly under the influence of Paul, which is Torah free, is, is law free. It doesn't follow, the, uh, there's no Torah observance, apart from one or two commandments like, you know, don't murder or something, don't commit adultery. But there's 613 commandments of the law. Um, and, and so you have a, a Gentile religion that develops later in the later first century, second century. And this is not just a, a new thing. It actually uh, anathematizes uh, the old original religion. So you get the rise of anti-Semitism clearly in many of the early fathers, particularly people like John Chrysostom, um, the golden mouth, ironically, whose anti-Semitic tirades uh, are shocking to modern ears, the way he talks uh, with the hatred and um, uh, and violence, uh, rhetorical, leading physical violence against the Jews. And this is so ironic, given that they're claiming direct lineage from Jesus. But the, the irony is the opposite, that they have become radically discontinuous from the law-observant religion that Jesus himself followed. But that was subsequently abandoned in Christianity. It's one of the great ironies of history, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Paul. There is absolutely right. There is some kind of a demarcation line between the message and mission of Jesus and what happened afterwards. Mm. The demarcation line in the scripture is that he was sent only to the Jews. Mm. What happened afterwards, going to the other side, beyond that line, was the work of the apostles. Apostles did that, but he did not do that. And there is no indication, at least in those texts we looked at so far, that he wanted them to do that. Yet, we all know as well that the change to the message and, and teachings of Jesus happened afterwards, after, after he'd gone. So, and that's very much kind of uh, makes things quite um, easy to understand. He didn't want anything to go outside uh, Palestine. But some after him did that, Paul in particular, Peter, of course. And then we ended up in a situation where, even in the account in, in Acts, if you follow some of what they say, including Peter, where you say how the law started to be disappearing suddenly. And then people were seeing vision, including Peter, about how the law doesn't matter much, or at least aspects of it, much of it. And then that distinction between his message, really, and their message, it's not only Paul, but even those who went and did not necessarily teach exactly what Paul said, but actually went out with a message. If, well, let me put it differently. If Jesus did not prepare them to talk to the Gentile, how did they learn what to say to those Gentiles? How on earth? If he did not tell them how to argue, how to debate with Gentiles, what points to make, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, how did they know that? How did they know? So what we ended up with, them making it up as they go along, and then Peter, Paul, do away gradually with aspects of the law, 
in order to what? Attract the crowds. And that's exactly what happened. Christian population in ancient times. Now, remember the image we have in the Gospels of Jesus earlier making, you know, performing miracles and thousands and thousands of people witnessing those miracles wherever he went. Yet suddenly we get to the point where he's crucified, but um, there's hardly anybody who's interested in him. Even his disciples disappeared. There are a couple of scenes of women, a couple of women, two, three women, you know, standing near to him or far from him, nobody knows, etc. But he's pretty much abandoned on his own. And scholars have always uh, noticed that this kind of stark difference between the image of this popular preacher etc. and suddenly this what looks like an outcast really who left um, on his own with no support whatsoever um, and then um, so the image that these these two just don't fit I mean my analysis and analysis of other scholars I think Jesus was kind of slightly successful let's say not by much really I did not think he developed huge following and the indications other than those miracles that attended by thousands or whatever later events suggest that to us and if we look at this instance from acts mm. um, in those days peter stood up among the believers together the crowd numbered about 120 persons well that's not a huge number is it 120 is a tiny yeah. number um yeah uh, as, as a is probably a, a completely uh, irrelevant um diversion here but um uh I, I i saw on our reputable website i think it was yesterday that for the first time in history the number of muslims in the world has passed two billion people wow. uh now and i mentioned that because christianity is still um just about the world's largest religion so it's gone from 120 to whatever it is now although the religion itself has gone through great transformations probably about six or seven transformations in the last uh 2000 years not just in the first century we're talking about roman catholicism the reformation the enlightenment and, and so on and so on um but uh th th that picture is is changing and, and and just in a matter of a couple of decades islam the number of muslims will exceed those of Christians uh, for the first time in history. But that's an irrelevant but, um, <laughs> diversionary point. But I still... No, no, it's a very good point, Paul. Very good, thank you. Um, at the Pentecost, things changed. Now, this is from Acts uh, chapter 2. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. Now, what happened is this. We started with Jesus' message, Performance, performing miracles, thousands and thousands. We ended up uh, with him on his own, hardly anybody around him. Beginning of Acts confirms there were not that many Christians, but then suddenly we get those milestone events when uh, the growth in population, Christian population, was in thousands. And this is one instance. Um, and then we have another one, but many of those who heard the word believed and they numbered about 5,000. This is from Act 4. So what we're seeing here is claims in Acts of incredible growth in the number of Christians, the kind of which obviously even probably uh, the time of Jesus was not seen. 
that is not, these numbers are not accepted by historians. In 1996, um, a sociologist um, uh, called Rodney Stark published a book in which he did for the first time calculations, tried to work out the number of Christians in ancient times. Obviously, as you would imagine, this is um, a science that involves a lot of assumptions, but it's an attempt to come up with numbers. And he concluded that by the year 40, there were around a thousand Christians. Uh, and um, in the year 100, about 7,500. There's another sociologist and um, professor of ancient history called uh, Keith Hopkins, two years mm -hmm. later, 98, did a similar study and got to the same results, same conclusions. Um, around the year 40, about 100, and uh, in, the, uh, in, in the year uh, 100, about 7,400. And Bart Ehrman has done his own work on this, and this is what he came up with. Yeah, it's just very interesting. Oops. Well, nearly. Right. Um, okay, so I don't really know how and why he thinks... Um, claiming that there were only 20 Christians in the year 30 is reasonable. Now, it doesn't matter how unpopular Jesus was or not very successful. That is a tiny, tiny number. If you accept anything in the Gospels, you really have to go beyond that number significantly, not necessarily in the thousands, but 20 is tiny. Now, the, the issue here is that I think is that his focus was on trying to make sense of or get to a point where in the year 300, about 10% of the Roman population were Christians. So there were about 30 million uh, living in the Roman Empire. So 3% um, roughly, 10% uh, is about 3 million. So he's trying to get to that figure. And the next milestone is by the year 400, half of the population in the Roman Empire, the 60 million, were Christians. So he got to those numbers. Um, the range he gave for the year 100, again, is in line with the earlier figures I mentioned. Uh, the average of this is about 7,000, uh, what, nine, nine, eight and a half. So the other two scholars uh, went for something like seven and a half. But the point is, the statement that is um, uh, attributed to, to Josephus in the testimonium is clearly wrong. Now, he lived around that time, and he could not have got it this wrong. However, written from a Christian perspective, you completely understand why somebody would have thought that Jesus converted a lot of Gentiles and Jews. I mean, just just on that point, I mean, it's often overlooked, actually. Um, you, you quote from Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 there. Um, in chapter 2, uh, in my um, New Revised Standard Version, uh, it talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So this is when, to use the Christian language, the Holy Spirit came on um, on the believers and they spoke in tongues and so on. And, and then Peter addresses the crowds and he says, uh, you know, addresses them as Israelites, so they're Jews, um, but also uh, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verse 5 onwards, talks about all those who were filled with the Holy Spirit, 
spoke in tongues and so on. But these are clearly Jews and they're only Jews. And I know that because verse five onwards says that they were just devout Jews some in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. So though they came from all over the Roman Empire and Christians normally assume, ah, oh, look at all these Gentiles who are receiving the Holy Spirit. And look, it's now a universal church, a universal mission to the whole world. But no, it specifically lists those from different places like uh, the, the uh, mentions re residents of Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Egypt, parts of Libya, Syria, go on and on. But these are explicitly only Jews and not Gentiles. And and just to reinforce that point, I mean, it's a different subject. L later on, you mentioned um, uh, Peter's vision um, of the, 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 the sheet coming down and the command to, to, to eat. And the conclusion he then gets for the first time that salvation is for the Gentiles as well. This is chapter 10, I think it is, Chap many, many chapters later, after chapter 2 in Acts. That This is the first time Peter's ever heard this, that salvation is for Gentiles. Wow. Amazing. And I think he was, sorry, but I think he was already, was it in Java? He was already in, in a Gentile city, I think, when this happened. Yeah, oh, this is Paul, uh, Peter and Cornelius, uh, chapter 10 in, in Acts. Gentiles to, are to hear uh, the good news. Um, and and this, this comes across, at least to me, as that Peter is hearing this for the first time. Now, Peter's not just any old guy. I mean, he is the chief apostle, of the chief disciple of Jesus. And this gives the lie. Uh, well, it, it means there's a contradiction, shall we say, between yeah. that and, say, the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus, the words are put on Jesus' lips to say, go into all nations baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Clearly a global reach, not just to the, the Jews. But but Peter in Acts, you know, many long, long after, has no idea of this commandment, clearly, because it comes as a complete surprise to him in Acts chapter 10. So Matthew is a much later, reflects the circumstances of the church towards the end of the first century. It's not the historical situation at all. Otherwise, Acts makes no sense. It makes no sense at all that this is, you know, Pentecost is just for the Jews, not to the whole world, contrary to the way Christians normally read that. And Peter knows nothing about the Gentile mission until much later in the book. Um, so th th these are kind of, um, you know, if one carefully listens to the texts, one notices these, these things, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think what we're talking about here in terms of inaccuracy in that statement in the testimonium is Two, 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 two kind of forms of inaccuracy. One of them is the numbers, talking about those massive numbers. And the second, yeah. in terms of converted uh, people, and the second is that involving Gentiles. Jesus didn't do that. He did not convert Gentiles, and he did not convert even Jews in large numbers. Yet, if we, if we look at this passage, uh, in the time it first appeared, early in the fourth century, then clearly that's completely understandable. By then, a lot of Gentiles, a lot of, not Jews, but Gentiles were certainly uh, become uh, Christians. And some Jews, of course, also converted um, willingly or by force. Okay, so what we've looked at now so far, three arguments to um, against the authenticity of any part of the testimonium. The first is that the silence of history, if you like. The second 
is the unity of the passage and the third uh, is uh, the 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 fact that what is left is 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 is, is uh, still has a christian tone even if you remove uh, those uh, um, christian interpolations moving on oops uh, did it go Oh, sorry, that's the reference I was looking for. So this is about uh, uh, Ammon. Oh, did, did Jesus yeah. exist? Yeah, yeah, if anybody yeah. wanted. It's an appendix in that book if they wanted to follow up. There are lots of assumptions. Yeah. That's, that's the one Bart Ehrman book I've not actually read, and I didn't bother reading it because I'm not a mythicist. Obviously, I believe Jesus existed. So I thought, am I really going to sit down and purchase a book and read a book that I personally think is completely silly argument anyway i don't mean bart Ehrman's argument i mean the argument that jesus didn't exist so i've actually not read this book the only one i haven't by him and what's interesting i think probably this is yeah i haven't read all of his books but probably this is the book in which he discusses uh, the testimonium in, in detail because oh, really? it's okay. relevant to the subject he's a clear yeah. trying to defend the historicity but at the same time uh, as i said earlier that's the problem that's really the driver there not necessarily mm -hmm. um, looking at it in a balanced way. Right. Okay, so there are some more um, arguments that suggest that uh, the testimonium is a complete forgery. Uh, they may not necessarily be as strong as the earlier one, but I'm gonna mention them. So the, the passage itself is said to be, a lot of people say this is out of context because Josephus first speaks about two outrageous acts by Pilate. First, when he came to Jerusalem, uh, he made his army uh, carry the image of uh, Pilate on their standards, army standards. Obviously, um, images are not allowed by law, so the, Christ the Jews were really angry. And then he followed that by another equally outrageous act by taking money from the temple uh, to try to build um, an uh, um, aqueduct. And obviously, that's temple money he should not have touched. Then we have the Jesus passage. Mm. After that, we have two scandals that happened in Rome. In the first one, uh, priests uh, in the in the temple in Rome seduced um, a woman there. In the second, four Jews, again in Rome, duped uh, a noble woman of her money. I think uh, on the you know claiming they're going to send it to Jerusalem to the temple. And then we have the account of an uprising of a Samaritan uh, who led people um, to uh, Mount Gerizim, their sacred mountain. So some scholars look at this and say, well, this Jesus passage seems to be out of context. It just doesn't relate to any of, of these scandals and um, kind of um, accounts. <laughs> The second argument, which is really interesting as well, when the first two acts by Pilate that infuriated the Jews are mentioned in the Jewish war, they aren't followed by the Jesus passage, the testimonium. It doesn't exist. So uh, for whatever reason, he didn't think of it. Um, one answer to this argument is that the the number of Christians at the time of the Jewish war, which was written 15 years or so before antiquities, wasn't as, you know, as large. 
as they were uh, 15 years later. But again, from what we've seen, they wouldn't have grown to such an extent that go from uh, getting no mention whatsoever to actually being mentioned uh, and talked about their large numbers. And what's interesting as well, um, there's um, a passage I mentioned earlier about John the Baptist in Book 20. Um, and in John the Baptist, uh, sorry, in uh, Book 18, um, but later, um, in John the Baptist, the, there is no mention of Jesus. <clears throat> um, now, you would think this is an opportunity for Josephus to say, but well, there was somebody called Jesus, or was the Christ, or claimed to be the Christ, or whatever, but there's no, no mention. He's not mentioned there. And the tone is very unfriendly to the Romans. Um, whoever Jesus was, even if, let's say, um, he wasn't um, the Messiah, he clearly is described as a popular figure, converted a lot of Gentiles and Jews, uh, and ended up being killed. Surely he must have done something really horrible. So he wasn't somebody. The Romans would have wanted somebody to speak about him in a positive way. Yet, as I mentioned earlier, the tone uh, of those um, statements, other than the Christian uh, passages um, are actually very, very positive of him. Right. Okay. I'm going to cover the arguments for partial authenticity. Why? What, what arguments are used to say? Because I've so far, if anybody, you know, those who are listening, watching, would say, well, everything now suggests that the testimonium is complete forgery. Well, why do those people, a uh, lot of scholars, majority say it's partially authentic? Well, these are the main arguments that are used. It exists in all manuscripts. Um, but the problem is the earliest, as you mentioned earlier, Paul, the earliest of the Greek manuscripts, there are only three of them. And the earliest is from the 11th century. So very late. Right. That is very late. So that, that's, that's over a thousand years after the lifetime of Josephus. And this is not unusual, by the way, for ancient texts. But this is the norm, I would think, that a lot of uh, you know texts would be for uh, Caesar or Plato or uh, Aristotle or whatever are, are often thousands of years later. But they're accepted, more or less. Yeah. This yeah, is fairly, absolutely. fairly standard. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and also, it exists in all of the Latin translations, the earliest of which comes from the 6th century. Now, these translations were made all by Christians, of course. So it exists also in those translations. But by, the, by then, as we saw, the testimonium was very known uh, among Christian uh, writers. Hmm. And this is where really most of the argument happens the vocabulary and style. And this is also one of the most subjective, probably, arguments. But this is where a lot of the um, kind of uh, proofs, if you like, 
that, oh, this part must have been written by Josephus um, uh, come from. Now, the, the issue here is, is kind of, there are two sides to this argument. First of all, you first have to show that those terms, phrases, etc., are Josephan, so they've been used by Josephus elsewhere. Second, that is not sufficient on its own because if, if Eusebius also used those, then obviously you've got the other argument that, well, yeah, the Josephus have used them, but then uh, Eusebius as well have used them. Why would I go with Josephus given the other argument? not Eusebius. However, uh, there's a quite a bit of work uh, that uh, has been done here by, uh, as I said, Ken Olson uh, on this particular uh, area where he shows, again, some of these, uh, these some parts uh, of the passage of the testimonium are more likely to be written by Eusebius or more aligned with his style uh, than the style of, of Josephus. So it's not really a conclusive argument either mm -hmm. way, but for those who advance the partial authenticity theory, it's a defensive argument. Mm. It's an uh, argument that tries to protect what I've got. There mm -hmm. isn't really much to do uh, beyond, um, this is where the main, the main arguments uh, is. Uh, they also say Christians uh, would not have described themselves as tribe. Um, that is not what Christians, not a term Christians would have done, but Josephus could have described, um, described them as a tribe. Uh, in fact, in Eusebius, this term is used twice. Admittedly, in quotes, but it is used twice. And um, so this is not um, kind of a conclusive argument either. The final one is the James passage. So I mentioned that uh, there's a passage about James mm. later in book 20, and then uh, he's described a man named Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. Now. The argument here is that uh, Jesus here is being called, um, it kind of James has been introduced in terms of Jesus, because Jesus is the brother of Jesus. And that means Jesus must have been mentioned earlier. Well, I can't see why that is the case. No. Because uh, whether Jesus was mentioned earlier or not, he is mentioned here, and he, we are being told he was called Christ. Why would we need him to have been mentioned earlier? Jesus supposedly is somebody who's called the Christ and known. And the other thing that this passage, this argument doesn't deal with is that we're still left with this ambiguous uh, term Christ, which the Greek, a Greek reader would not have understood. Who's a Christ? Nobody knows who's a Christ. And I think we come yeah. to the end here. Uh, let me just uh, just say a couple of things about conclusion. So, 
What I covered here is three major arguments for the testimonium to be a complete forgery. Silence of history, <clears throat> passage, and tone of passage. These three combined, in my view, make a very strong case. And if we are talking about balance of evidence, surely the point, these points outweigh massively any other secondary points that are made in, 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 in defense of the partial authenticity argument. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I mean, before I, I heard your presentation, my view was that the passage as we have it is inauthentic, but had been interpolated. There was some corruption of the text. But I think you make a very strong argument, actually, for saying the whole thing is basically, um, you know, created uh, later, possibly by Eusebius. Um, so I, I think you actually make a, a persuasive case. And, um, and if people want to follow your uh arguments in more detail you, you've written a book crucifixion of jesus faith or history or historical faith um by yourself um it's uh, a work of scholarship and you discuss um this issue uh about flavors josephus uh in detail as as well as uh, the crucifixion in the quran of course crucifixion in the new testament and the reliability or unreliability of many of the historical sources that are commonly assumed to be reliable by uh, non-scholars, because scholars have usually a much more nuanced um, view. Um, sorry, yes. I interrupted. Yeah. So, so uh, just to go back, the 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 issue really that I want to stress here is that the main problem uh, with accepting the uh, the testimonium is really one of mindset, and mm. one that extends from the mindset with. with that we use when we deal with the Gospels. I don't say we as in Muslim scholars don't do that. I'm talking about Western scholarship in general. Mm -hmm. These are sources that those scholars learned over the centuries to accept the authority of, uh, even though no name, no exact date, no, um, no information about who this person, where they got the information. This is the tradition mm -hmm. on, on which the acceptance of the testimonium uh, has been based. And what I see here is just extending this this kind of a bit really abnormal in some way because scholars, Western scholarship has changed significantly, of course, from where it was in the past. But there are like some really oddity here. And I consider this ongoing discussion about the a partial authenticity of the passage of this passage of the testimonium as, as an oddity in the way Western scholarship now talk about the historical Jesus. Without that mindset, and without that obsession almost with just give me something else I want to talk about, tells me something about, and I understand we all frankly feel that about any personality we cherish, we love, we care about. We are keen on Jesus as much as everybody. I mean, how many times we would have read the Quran and said, I wish the Quran maybe had more about the Prophet Sallallahu for instance. You say that, it's just natural. But that's, that's, there's a wisdom in that. And then you accept, that's it. And outside the Quran, when you approach any other sources, you have approached it with some critical uh, mindset. You have to evaluate. And we, in our tradition, we have developed criteria, framework, for doing that. And that is exactly what you do now. If you submit a paper now to a, an academic, academic journal and you quote yourself, well, nobody's going to even read it. 
Well, that's for heaven's sake. That's exactly what we've got here. People <laughs> are quoting themselves and we're accepting their quotes. Um, and that's, um, yeah, so uh, it is really, frankly, in my view, it amounts to a bit of a scandal, I have to say. Yeah, it's a bit of a strong word, but that's how I feel about it. Well, I mean, to be fair, the Christian world in its academic um, dimension it has caught up, particularly in the last 150 years uh, in New Testament scholarship, biblical scholarship, archaeology, textual criticism, uh, uh, general historical research. But, and, th and there's a huge but here, and this is the difference with uh, than the Islamic counterpart, the Islamic tradition, is that the Christian tradition, you get this bifurcation, you get this very gulf between what the Christian academy knows, so, you know, Christian scholars at Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, yeah, etc., on the one hand, and what um, the... Uh, the the so-called man or woman in the pew, the so-called I say so-called because it's quite a patronising designation, but that's how it's framed. The man or woman in the pew in the church believes and knows and is read about, and this huge gulf is the scandal I think because um, Christian lost Christian scholars have caught up, but many even conservative ones who know about all these things still try to um, fashion it in a certain way to make it palatable for um, traditional faith. So they're not entirely kind of unvarnished even then, but it's this huge chasm. And you don't really get that so much in the Islamic tradition because you it's built in. So the Hadith criticism, uh, the, the methodologies and techniques uh, um, were developed very early on in the Islamic world, um, centuries, centuries before the Christian world caught up with these critical skills which were developed amongst the Islamic scholars. So um, yeah. it, well, it's there's still this problem of this huge separation between the so-called Christian experts and the so-called laity. Yeah, I think, I think, Paul, also, I mean, if you look at the Gospels, Gospels are primary sources. So this is the earliest we've got. So I, I understand why, you know, a lot of allowance is made for these. But the, the testimonium isn't. The testimonium doesn't give us anything new about Jesus. It's actually, it's a, it's a piece that can only be used for preaching and, um, you know, spreading Christianity. So as a scholar, I can't see why I would have any interest in approving the authenticity or partial authenticity of this as opposed to the primary sources that I don't have anything better, uh, better on. So I understand that. Yeah. Uh, just one point I just should have mentioned, just occurred to me. When an argument is made about the manuscripts and the fact that all manuscripts that we have uh, mm. are, um, you know... A thousand years later. This yeah. all. The problem with this argument is that this is an argument for the whole passage. If you believe in the partial authenticity of the test testimony, you can't use that argument because it, it, the whole passage exists in those... In, in the, What are you trying to say? The mm. argument it exists, well, exists only that, which is the point I raised earlier. Yeah. Nobody seen, nobody heard of that cut down version of the testimonial. Mm, very interesting. Well, uh, well, thank you very much uh, in, indeed, uh, Louis, for your, uh, as usual, thorough scholarly exposition of the critical issues. Um, you've done this time and time again, alhamdulillah, on blogging theology. And, and of course, in your published work, I mentioned this book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, where these issues uh, and related subjects are discussed with similar uh, care for the sources and their critical evaluation. So I do um, applaud you for your methodology and your service to um, Muslim um, education, I think. Uh, um, you, you are helping to raise the bar in our understanding of these subjects. Um, so thank you very much indeed. Thank sir. you, Paul. I'm just um, not returning um, your words, but I really want to 
thank you on behalf of myself, the people I know, a lot of people I know, and the many people I don't know for the service uh, you're giving to, the, to Muslims and non-Muslims in developing this channel, this unique channel, this unique channel, proper, genuine educational channel where you try your best to put across variety of views on a variety of subjects and really give people a source that I find it difficult, used to find it difficult mm. to refer people to a particular place, one place for one thing. And often, even when it comes to translation of the Quran, when people at times ask me, I usually give them two, three, and I tell them, don't use only one, whichever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can see that. Um, but I, for one, this is a place that I often recommend uh, to people to, who ask me about certain things or in general for general information of a variety of topics relating to Christianity, uh, Islam, Judaism, uh, yeah. and indeed broader issues as well. So just, and I obviously a consumer of some of that content. I'm really a producer of that content yourself. <laughs> but I do do benefit a lot. I think you probably have. And so do I. Cool. I'm also a, a, a consumer of that content. In that I'm pretty I, sure. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm, and I honestly, you at times put me in a difficult position, Paul, because you publish something and I'm really short of time. And I feel myself, I have to find the time for it. Mm. It's something I have to watch. I don't watch everything, but there are things that are re related and relevant to what I work on. And I have to find the time and always, never, ever came, uh, came out dis disappointed. So thank you. Thank you to you and thank you to your guest and thank you to the excellent for the excellent work you've done paul and you continue to do well i'm very grateful to god for the blessings he's bestowed on this channel and we've all benefited uh, as consumers then uh, of, of the content um well thank you very uh, much indeed louis until next time inshallah inshallah see you